He must have been about 70 years old when I first met him. Retired from a career as a Southern Baptist missionary, he had spent many years in Brazil. For the nine summers that I worked at that South Carolina Baptist boys camp located in the shadow of Goat Mountain and in the reflection of Lake Chilliwater, he was a fixture. Each week of each summer, we hosted a real live missionary whose job was, well, whose job was impossible. The missionary was given one hour each day, a little too long if you ask me, and it was positioned conveniently between Aunt B's homemade breakfast of grits and eggs and bacon and homemade biscuits and activity time, you know, canoe sinking or sky glide or the craft hut. And in that one hour, which often lasted the better part of the week, as I recall, he was supposed to steal the attention of a hundred squirming boys, inspiring them in spiritual awe for the life-changing work of the fulfilling the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, or just let me out of here so I can get to the canteen and have a can of Yoo-Hoo soda and a moon pie. I'm not sure whose idea it was to pit the stellar speaking abilities of retired Southern Baptist missionaries with pre-adolescent testosterone, but I do not need to tell you how that match came out most of the time. <laughs> you see, apparently it was not all that easy to find a missionary willing to give up a week of furlough or retirement to put his ego on the line against a mountain full of camp activities and do so even in a slightly interesting manner, which may be why this old, single, retired missionary usually spent what seemed like half of the summer with us. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't remember his name, so I sent out a quick, a quick Facebook inquiry to some of my former staff colleagues. Quickly, a response came back. I can't remember his name either, but he smelled bad all the time. <laughs> Someone else quickly reminded me that he walked around camp all the time, apparently smelling bad, and uh, uh, messing with those little camp strings. You remember those plastic craft strip strings that you could make little squares out of and necklaces and keychains? And he always did that, so he developed a nickname, and we just called him Craft Strip. I still don't remember his name, but Craft Strip is the right nickname. All of that came back to me. But what I will never forget, the reason I wrote for his name to begin with, was a story that old Craft Strip loved to tell when it was his time to give the devotion. The farmer in Brazil was moving his cattle, and he had to have them cross a broad, shallow river. The farmer knew they were piranha in that water, and that they would love nothing better than a feast of ground beef for dinner, so the farmer took one old cow upstream. She was having a hard time keeping up with the herd anyway, so he took her a safe distance away and waded into the water with her, and with his long knife, he went straight for the jugular. Craft Strip loved that line, straight for the jugular. As the blood flowed, that Amazon water began to boil, and soon the piranha had reduced the old cow to a thin carcass, but not before the farmer had led the rest of his cows safely across 
to the other bank farther downstream. The atonement metaphor was clear for craft strip. Just as the sacrifice of one old cow can save the rest of the herd, Jesus' blood can save us. This and years of similar camp sermons came flooding back into my mind when I read Lamar Williamson's quotation with its use of that word jugular. Isn't it interesting, the power of one word. The Gospel of Mark has made a decisive turn. Jesus will be much more open about his work from here to the end, much less demanding his identity be kept secret. And with the opening lines of today's text, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, Mark points us headlong to Jerusalem and to the Passion narrative, the story of Jesus' death, which will take nearly one-third of the entire gospel. But the atonement to which Mark points us is significantly different from the way I heard it from so many pastors offering the gospel from that little white chapel overlooking my beloved summer home. Hear it now in the words of Lamar Williamson. What does it mean to be Christian? Paul and John emphasize believing. Matthew stresses obedience to the law. Mark is a lion, strong and tough. Here, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus on his costly way in an imitation of Christ that brushes aside the pieties usually associated with that phrase and goes for the jugular of life itself. As craft strip would have it, Christian conviction is costly, and that sacrificial price was borne by Jesus. According to Lamar Williamson, as Mark would have us hear it, commitment is costly, but just as Jesus died and lived sacrificially, so must we. As you read through Mark's gospel, you come to three predictions of Jesus' impending death. It's not coincidental that Mark foreshadows that bloody spectacle a perfect three times because the cross is the center of Mark's understanding of this message Jesus has announced as good news. As Jesus begins to instruct his disciples on the reality of their mission, Peter reacts first, as always, and Jesus' response begins to focus our attention on a dichotomy of things, above and things below, heaven and earth, human and divine. You are setting your mind not on divine things, Jesus said to Peter, but on human things. By the way, Mark pairs these opposites. Jesus' suffering is the divine thing. So we have to be careful as we read and as we live, because that distinction between heaven and earth is not always so easy to discern. In the story we call the Transfiguration, there are clear elements of this division. The disciples see Jesus with Moses and Elijah, obviously a heavenly vision, quote unquote. 
To which Peter responds with complete ecclesiastical irony, hey guys, let's build some buildings. Someone has called that need to build and build and build an edifice complex. Edifice complex. And it is not a new psychological condition. These disciples experienced the vision to beat all heavenly visions, and the best Peter can suggest is a capital campaign. The disciples are left in bewilderment. What could this mean? This heavenly vision that leaves them again down to earth just with their friend Jesus. What does it mean? In the next scene, we encounter the rest of the disciples arguing with a group of Jewish scribes, experts into the law. And into this obviously theological argument, uh, Mark interjects the most human of stories. Now, it's interesting to me that we hear about this argument and Jesus never addresses it. It seems to me that he's telling us that what comes next is more important than any theological argument. Here we find the father struggling for his son. In Birmingham, I had a clergy colleague whose daughter was a severe epileptic. On occasions, David had shared with me the agony he and his wife had known all her life the countless times her disease had abruptly flung her down the stairs or onto the furniture or across the parking lot. She had had too many broken bones for him to count. Her face was a battlefield of scars. As a pre-adolescent, she had been reduced to the indignity of wearing a football helmet whenever she left the house, but even that was no guard against injury. You know, it's no wonder that an ancient world said such a child was demon-possessed. I cannot imagine a better description of the emotion a father must feel. And that's what we're reading in this story today. So when Jesus asked the man if he believes, which must involve some amount of heavenly grace, the paradox of true faith is revealed. I believe and I don't. Can you help me? Can you relate? I believe and I don't believe. Can you help me? It is with this paradoxical mix of the so-called heavenly things and earthly things that Mark offers his first prediction of the coming death of Jesus Doing so, he cuts to the heart of the matter, foreshadowing the truth of that atonement which is in the heart of God. As I read the text today, I rearranged the sequence because I wanted to end with what I believe is Mark's key to understanding this prediction. This text is one that is difficult for 21st century Christians to understand because the cross, for most of us, has just become a decoration a totem, a fancy flourish of jewelry. But no first century Israelite could read this text as we do today. They understood that the cross was a Roman implement of torture, 
mostly reserved as a political and military punishment of the worst kind, so much so, now listen to this, so much so that the phrase, take up your cross, might have become a kind of war cry in that day, a recruiting phrase of the Jewish insurg insur insurgents. Do you hear that? Take up your cross. Let's go against the Romans. I think these are difficult words for us to hear today amidst the frequent use and misuse of the word jihad. But there is some evidence that take up your cross first had that precise kind of military context. A little like Patrick Henry's famous cry, give me liberty or give me death, this phrase may have been a call to active insurrection against the Romans, take up your cross. And Chad Myers also notes that Jesus' words about saving life and losing life have been found in almost identical form in speeches by Hellenistic military officers on the eve of battle, anxious to exhort the faltering spirits of nervous soldiers. If you die, there's reward. Wow. Myers summarizes this call to discipleship as follows. Jesus has revealed that his messiahship means political confrontation with, not rehabilitation of, the imperial state. Those who wish to come after him will have to identify themselves with his subversive program. The stated risk is that the disciple will face the test of loyalty under interrogation by state authorities. If self is denied, the cross will be taken up. A metaphor for capital punishment on ground of insurgency. Through these definitive choices, the disciple will follow Jesus. Which is a far cry from walking the aisle and being baptized so you can go to heaven when you die. Don't you think? I'm not calling today for some anti-government insurrection. That call is already loud enough among certain angry elements in our country. There can be no denying, however, that the church has exchanged a radical call of discipleship for the easy piety of Christian conversion. True following will involve a necessary confrontation with the powers that be, and that means government authorities and church authorities and cultural authorities over issues of peace and justice. Following Jesus will mean standing strong to defend the poor, the widow, the foreigner, the outcast. If we really want to follow, baptism by immersion is the right metaphor because it will mean the transformation of all we are from head to toe, inside and out, and it might just cost all we have. What will it take? 
for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? We pray it every Sunday. I think to begin with, we must begin to know that God is not out there in heaven, far removed from the concerns of this world. On the contrary, God is with us, among us, in us. And we must believe that the atonement God seeks will always be worked out with hands and feet in the lives of those committed to truth and justice. May we be among those so committed. May it be so.